RST3712, Analyzing the Spiritual Self, Introduction. Hi, I'm Dr. Garth Mason, and this is the first of the podcasts for the module. In the study of religion, the distinction is often made between emic and etic approaches, insider and outsider perspectives. It is obviously easier to undertake etic research because of the empirical data that can be collected and presented as evidence. In second year, you may have taken RST 2601, Material Religion, which focuses on the senses and experience of religious objects in, for example, ritual and religious food. By contrast, the study of the spiritual self is primarily concerned with the insider or emic perspective. Its focus is on how meaning and value are born from spiritual experience for the spiritually orientated person. But the problem remains, how does the researcher gain access to spiritual experience to study in others? It is an intensely subjective experience. In many respects, the most direct access to such such spiritual experience for researchers is via autobiography and personal writings. But this is not to mitigate the ineffability of the subject matter. Indeed, we have to bear in mind that in the act of writing, there is creativity involved in the very formation of an idea. Representations of the self in writing may approximate the experience of the self, but is still a mere representation of the experience. So when we look at the self in our study, and particularly the spiritual self, we need to remember we are looking at representation, literary representations, that is. The spiritual self is best seen as a symbolic representation of an experience that escapes linguistic frames and definition the self as symbol, as it were. James Olney, one of the first theorizers of autobiography, posed such a question, is the self a metaphor? This is something we will delve into in more detail next week. Certainly, ideas of self and soul are the most enduring in the catalogue of human ideas through history. As we progress through this module, we will see, however, that though the spiritual self has been with us as humans in different cultures for hundreds and thousands of years, the idea has evolved and changed over time. Self, as understood in the modern context, is also inclusive of how it is constructed and deconstructed in relation to its social and historical context. Contexts are differently influenced by culture, dominant doctrines, economies, regional politics. This is the reason why our awareness of writing has a creative process. Uh, sorry, as a creative process, becomes an important consideration. In the process of writing about the spiritual self, the person draws from their cultural and socio-political context. In addition, we are aware in the modern context that the self is narratively based on our influences and what narratives are important to us, both religious and cultural narratives. In this respect, identity formation considerations become inseparable from ideas of ourself. These narratives alter and change over time, so that any grasp of the self is filled with as many absences of understanding 
as are points of certainty. In this regard, Charles Taylor's writings in The Source of the Self are useful, particularly Taylor's concept of strong evaluations, because this idea assists in the understanding of how the self is constructed via context and identity. But in order to really understand the relation of identity formation and self, you need to take on board Olney's concept of the cultural moment, or how the self articulates itself within an instance of space and time. In analysing the spiritual self, we are also concerned with the interaction between religious practice and inner spiritual reflection on the construction of cultural meaning of spirituality within the cultural moment. The integration of identity formation with the spiritual self becomes, uh, sorry, comes with attendant psychological aspects of experience specific to time and space. For example, what happens to the self when it sinks into the spiritual state? What kind of experiences emerge in a particular point in time in relation to the specific narratives the person has accepted as true for him or herself? Our studies of mystics' writings proves very informative in this regard, such as those of Julian of Norwich. To return to my initial distinction between emic and etic approaches, the etic approaches concern themselves with outer layers of religion, doctrine, religious objects and orthodox beliefs. Emic approaches are concerned with spiritual experiences. Etic focus is very often on how religion is codified and ordered. Emic approaches, such as investigations into the spiritual self, often are more radical and revolutionary in that they express experiences that often challenge orthodoxy and its attempts to order and universalize religious experience and practice. One could make the gross distinction between religion of law as etic and religion as spirit as emic. Activity 1.1 consists of two tasks, a mind map of the module structure and a column that assists you to distinguish historical phases in the evolution of the understanding of the spiritual self. This activity will help you develop a frame or a handle for our investigations into the deep and often inexpressible experiences of the spiritual self, as different representations have attempted to capture the spiritual self through history. It also forms part of sign one, one due on 7 August. That is all for now. Stay well and safe. I'll return with another podcast next week. Watch the announcements page on my UNISA. RST3708, Analyzing the Philosophy of Religion, Podcast 2. I see that my inbox is full of your assignment one submissions. Thank you. I will get to marking them over the weekend. Please remember that the main idea for assignment one is to encourage you to use the discussion forum on my UNISA. This is your space to talk to your classmates about topics related to the module. I do visit the forums once a week and make some suggestions, but I don't impose myself onto the space. I feel this should be your space to discuss amongst yourselves. In today's podcast, I'm going to talk about ancient philosophies of Greece, commonly known as antiquity. And we were referring to Unit 2 in Tutorial Letter 501. I'm not going to dwell on the content of the unit, namely the pre-Socratics, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, so much as provide historical and theoretical frameworks to help you enrich your understanding of the material of these philosophers.
So let's first turn to the historical framework. In much the same way as New Testament scholars presume that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are based on Mark and a no longer a document that is no longer in existence called Q source, which is the sayings of Jesus. Just in the same way, we no longer have copies of the writings of the pre-Socratics. Most of our knowledge of the pre-Socratics comes from what is written about them by Plato, Aristotle and other fragments. The major hurdle to studying these philosophers, and indeed early Greek culture, is that the Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire in 313 CE. Not only were Christians not to be persecuted anymore, the religion was to, be, was to be protected by the empire. Then in 380 CE, or what used to be called AD, uh, Emperor Theodosius I made Christianity not only the official religion of the empire, but also outlawed all other religions. As a result of this edict, known as the Edict of Thessalonica, there was wholesale destruction of literature and culture, cultural artefacts from pre-Christian antiquity. In the struggle to establish an orthodox universal Christian belief, there was a long period where competing forms of Christianity were declared heresies and were violently suppressed. Pagan beliefs fell within the ambit of beliefs that were a threat to the empire's project of creating a unified belief system under Christianity. Unfortunately, the outlawing of diversity of thought in past cultures had a devastating effect of weakening the empire in terms of education, literacy and general cultural life. Plato's Academy, that had existed in different forms for nearly a thousand years, was closed in 529 CE by the Emperor Justinian. Were it not for Islamic scholars and a few brave Christian monks, these valuable texts from Greek antiquity would have been lost to, lost to us. Nevertheless, in the 19th century, doxology scholars began studying strains of thought from antiquity that has come down to us. Thanks to them, and also because we now we know today we can talk about what we know today, we can talk about orthodox understanding of Greek philosophy. So what we are studying in this module is the orthodox approach to Greek philosophy. I will now talk about the, the theoretical framework for studying Greek philosophy and indeed for the entire model, module. The development of orthodox Western philosophy follows two strands or themes, what can be called the holistic approach and the atomistic approach. We will return to these two ideas throughout the module and place each philosopher we come, come to in terms of these two categories. In a nutshell, holistic philosophy operates within a theoretical framework that looks at the whole system. It tends to view systems as a, of ideas as operating as a plant or another life form, as an organism. Plato is the prime example of a holistic philosopher. His whole system operates from a core idea of the theory of ideas. In fact, 
they are the only real things. Everything else is just images of these realities, these, the, these ideas. Ultimately, there's just one idea, really, the idea of the good. These kinds of holistic philosophies are also called realist philosophies or realist philosophers. Holists tend to argue for a certain determinacy, meaning that the course of events is predetermined in this whole system. On the other hand, atomists argue that reality is made of small units, namely atoms. These small units combine and recombine with each other into different forms with a variety of characteristics. Atomists place more emphasis on causality because of the interaction between atoms that shapes the effects that occur. Atoms, oh sorry, atomists place more emphasis on freedom of choice and agency. Aristotle is a good example of an atomist. He is less inclined to make categorical statements, particularly when it comes to ethics. Aristotle would rather say that each person's ethics must fathom itself out in terms of the individual character. Atoms are often called oh atomists are often called non-realists because they cannot fit into one paradigm or system. They would argue that what we call reality is always changing and in process. That is all for now. I'll return with another podcast next week. Please email me if you have any queries about the module's material. Ciao for now.